0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Feignor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Matthew Duncombe, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. His new book, Ancient Relativity, Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, and Skeptics, is just out from Oxford University Press. As a matter of basic metaphysics, we classify individuals in terms of their relations to other things. For example, a parent is a parent of someone, a larger object is larger than a smaller object. The nature of relativity, the question of how things relate to other things, is a topic that winds its way throughout the history of philosophy to the present day. In his book, Duncombe considers ancient views of relativity from Plato, Aristotle, skeptics, particularly Simplicius, and the Stoics, particularly Sextus Empiricus. He defends the view that these thinkers shared a common basic position, which he calls constitutive relativity. This is the idea that relativity is a matter of the relative being a certain way rather than, for example, having a certain predicate true of it or of having a certain feature. He argues that this reading enables us to make sense of such arguments as Parmenides' main objection to Plato's theory of the forms, and that it comes into its own in its role in the skeptics' opposition to dogmatic belief. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Matthew Duncombe. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be talking to you about your new book, Ancient Relativity, Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, and Skeptics, um, which is a very nice departure into ancient metaphysics from our current situation with the coronavirus. Well, yeah. um, <laughs> Like you know, let's let's do something completely different for a change. Um, It it is different. (laughs) Yes, it definitely is. Um, Which is which is a good thing, I think, in these circumstances in particular. Um, Before we delve into you know deep dive into metaphysics uh, of Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, um, uh, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in in this particular topic, and then how the book kind of came apart came came. Uh, came about. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me on. I'm a really big fan of the podcast, so it's it's great to be on. Um, I'm yeah. So I'm an assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Nottingham, and really, this is my first sort of big monograph project. Uh, before I was at, at Nottingham, I had a postdoc in Durham, a British Academy postdoc, which really was the sort of meat of when this this kind of book was written. Uh, when I was up there in in Durham. And before that, I had a sort of separate postdoc in the Netherlands where I was working on the project on ancient logic. And before that, I did my PhD in classics um, at Cambridge. And that was, yeah, that was kind of really where I wrote. That that was kind of really the genesis of this project because my PhD project was on relativity, in fact, in, in Plato, or relative terms in Plato, as I was thinking of it then and the PhD project really uh, doesn't have a huge amount in common with what ended up in the book, even though the first sort of three chapters of the book cover Plato. I've changed a lot of the arguments and a lot of the ways of thinking about relativity from from the PhD, I- including in Plato. Uh, but, yeah, that was really the genesis of, of where these kind of ideas, this, this idea to work on ancient relativity came from, and that was suggested by my kind of supervisor originally. Um, I got into maybe I should say something about how I got into ancient philosophy because my background was really in in contemporary philosophy. My undergraduate degree was in contemporary philosophy, and I was very interested in analytic philosophy, in Frege in particular, and sort of found my way into uh, ancient philosophy through thinking about Frege's kind of Platonism and thereby looking at Plato and the kinds of arguments that come up in Plato, like the third man argument, that are kind of relevant to analytic metaphysics. Um, and that's really how I sort of got, got into to ancient philosophy. And yeah, eventually just that became my main interest. And I switched and moved in the classics department and, and wrote my PhD on ancient philosophy.
0: Cool. Um, most people who who look at Platonism, you know, in mathematics or whatever, uh, d- don't go to Plato, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, they just sort of take on this uh, otherworldly metaphysics. Um, but in any yeah. case, um, so we're talking about relativity. And, yeah. you know, for a lot of people today, obviously, relativity is, is, uh, is you know, physics, in physics, you know, Einstein's relativity, and that's not what we're talking about. So maybe you could say first, uh, what is relativity, generally?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I take relativity just to be the phenomenon that things relate to things. So there are brothers, there are parents, there are larger things and smaller things. Um, there's some very important philosophical concepts like knowledge seem to be relational concepts so relativity is just this very general catch-all term for this phenomenon that things relate to things and of course I guess physical theories of relativity one prominent feature of those physical theories is that they make use of this fact that things relate to things but there's nothing proprietary I guess about physical theories of relativity that's not really what I'm talking I don't certainly don't think Plato has a theory of relativity in the sense of Einstein's theory of relativity or anything like that. Um, what I mean by, yeah, ancient relativity is just this, this idea that ancient philosophers have a grip on this phenomenon and they try to deal with it in kind of philosophically interesting ways. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where, where I take relativity to, to, to me. Yeah. That's what I kind of take relativity to, to me.
0: Okay. And how do you, how do you distinguish that from, you know, just relations or i mean there are different there, you know there are various metaphysical issues in this area you know one is the relativity another is the whole metaphysics of relations another is the whole metaphysics of relational properties right um or whether those two things are different or the same right so how how does your focus here distinct uh, differ from Uh, say metaphysics of relations and or relational properties
1: yeah so maybe i'll just say a a quick bit about the difference between relations relatives and relational properties because really i'm so really the difference is one way to think about the difference is focusing on what the difference between ancient philosophers and the way contemporary philosophers think about this phenomenon of relativity right so you might think contemporary philosophers come at the phenomenon of relativity that things relate to things by thinking about relations that is the thing that relates two things. So Matt, I'm a brother, uh, my brother Pat and my brother Dom, we're all related by the is brother of relation. And contemporary philosophers tend to think about relativity in terms of the relations, the things that do the relating. You can almost picture those kind of chemistry ball and stick models, You know, where you have uh, one ball representing one atom, another ball representing another atom and a stick between the two, connecting them, and that connection, that's the relation, something like that. Um, whereas ancient philosophers tend to come at this phenomenon of relativity from the point of view of looking at the relata or the relatives, that is the things that are related. So it's not that they don't think that there are relations, rather it's that they focus on analysing this phenomenon of relativity by thinking about the things that are related rather than the things that do the relating. Um, and I just use the term relatives for those things that are related. Some people, as I, as I say, use the term relata, but, you know, why introduce unnecessary Latin when you don't have to? Um, (laughs) And then the third thing you mentioned, relational properties, just very briefly, are the properties that you might have in virtue of relations you bear. So um, being a husband is a relation that I have. It's a one-place relation that I have in virtue of bearing the is-married-to relation
0: to my wife, something like that. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, so um, you cover, you know, or at least uh, the... The, the people that you look at, uh, the texts that you look at, are, you know, over a period of something like seven centuries, right? Um, so it's a, it's a huge amount, and you kind of pick out, you know, two major philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and then two uh, movements, um, although particular people within those movements as well, Um and you you argue that that all of them are are unified by a basic commitment to what you call a constitutive relativity, a particular a particular way of of explaining or understanding what relativity is. Um, so can you can you explain what this is and maybe contrast it with a you know major opposing perspective?
1: Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, constitutive relativity sounds like a big grand thing, but really it's quite a simple idea. You're starting from the point of view of, if you're starting from the point of view of what's a relative, you can ask questions about it like, what is it to be a brother? Uh, What is it to be a parent? What is it to be a larger thing? And constitutive relativity is the idea that the answer to that kind of question is uh, in terms of what, constitutes being a brother, what constitutes being a parent, what constitutes being a larger thing. It's an answer to the, what is it to be a larger thing kind of question, right? And the answer is going to be in terms of a smaller thing. So the, uh, the thought is that constitutive relativity is an answer to a sort of question about the nature of a relative or the nature of, of relatives, an answer to, if you like, an answer to the what is it kind of question. And these kind answers to these kinds of questions really have to pick out they have to do two things they have to pick out all of the items in question, so all of the larger things, and they have to explain in virtue of what they're larger things they have that feature so and you can think about the larger thing is larger than the smaller thing well that 's going to do both of those jobs it 's going to tell you what all the larger things are all of the larger things are larger than a smaller thing, and it 's going to explain in virtue of what those things are larger i e it 's because they have this is larger than relation to the smaller thing. So that seems pretty, and that can get pretty weird because we're thinking in terms of this ancient perspective of like asking about the natures of relatives rather than the kind of contemporary perspective where we're thinking about relations primarily to analyze this phenomenon of relativity. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, does that make sense as the constitutive view?
0: Sure. I mean, to to get us started. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So one one of the questions, I mean, you've already raised, you know, one particular uh, individual, as we would put it, um, uh, can can be uh, is 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 a, is a relative, is is multiply relative, or is is lots of relatives at the same time? Uh, I'm not sure. because one of the things you say is that. Um, uh one of the weird things about this is the idea that um it's a very fine-grained ontology right so there's there's you know an object you know what we would say today is there's some sort of an individual an object um and it has say lots of relational properties or something uh or it stands in lots of different relations um and that that ontologically that's just you know one item with lots of you know features um and as I understand your view uh the idea that that the ancients um defended uh or or held implicitly in some cases is that um uh no 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 there's just there's lots of objects there there's a a there's something that uh is a brother and there's something that is a husband and there's something that is the sun and there, you know, and so on and so forth. Can can you explain that? Because it's it is very um, odd. It means, mm. you know, it's like how do we, how, what are we referring to? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a really good. This is a really good question. I think that this. Uh, this is this kind of goes to this is a point that the constitutive view has. You know, it's difficult to explain why you would why you would have this view. If you're coming from a kind of contemporary perspective where you think, well, what are the concrete objects? Well, Matthew is a kind of concrete object and he's a kind of thing that bears all these different relations. He bears the as brother of relations, the husband of relations, the son of relation, and so on to a bunch of different things. Um, and then the constituent view comes along and says, no, no, actually what's going on here is a bunch of co-located relatives, a brother, and that's not the same thing as the father. That's not the same thing as the son. That's not the same thing as the husband, right? but it's just that this father this son and this husband are all happen to be co-located um or something like that yeah and i yeah. think that that's that's a that's a tricky that's a tricky question and i think it i think it's a broader question though for the ontologies of plato aristotle stoics and so on because on any ontological picture you're going to have to say something about how properties not just relational properties but how relatives and uh you know qualities and locations and somehow, and so, and so on, somehow coalesce into one particular spatio-temporal re- region. So I just want to say, I'm going to defer that question to, however, you're going to answer that second broader question, how these objects kind of co-locate and coalesce. The story for that is going to be different depending on, your think- on the thinker. And I just want to defer that to, to, to that kind of prior, bigger question. So whatever answer right. you give to that question about how will these things come together? I'm just gonna piggyback on that, I guess.
0: Right, right. Although uh, it does seem that um they will not be committed to a bare particular
1: uh yeah, I think that's uh I I don't know, that's a that's an interesting question about whether any particular ancient philosopher committed to bare particulars. I mean some readings of Plato have him committed to something like bare particulars or because that's how all of these things that are under the that kind of participate in the forms kind of get the forms get attached to them or something like that. Um so I'm not sure how yeah I'm not sure exactly I mean I think there are the possibilities are wide open for 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 any kind of given ancient thinker. I guess Aristotle is going to have something more is going to be more committed on that particularly in the categories with the primacy of primary substance which maybe we'll talk about a bit more but primary substances right. seem to be the things that ground uh other right. features,
0: um, in the categories right i guess my, my thought was um it's certainly consistent with a, a view of you know primary substance or a bare particular or something but you know in theory you could just have you know a, a bundle view of some sort uh which lacks that round of some sort yeah yeah nicely yeah. Uh, um, yeah good okay so um uh maybe we should since you mentioned the theory of the forms right um uh you know you, you sort of you you go through a number of the the formal properties of of constitutive relativity and and you know i, I think you should feel free to introduce those. Kind of as needed, Um, but um, uh, in your analysis of the Parmenides, right? um, You argue that um, he seems to rely on the view of constitutive relativity, um, uh, uh, and that you know Parmenides, at least the character Parmenides um, in the in the dialogue, uh, you know, raises a difficulty for the theory of the forms that. Um, essentially depends on this idea of, you know, hey, if your if your theory, you know, presupposes uh, constitutive relativity, then your theory of the forms just isn't gonna fly. Right. So can can you explain that sort of dialectic there?
1: Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll say something about what I what you mentioned, the formal features of, of relativity first and then I'll talk about the greatest difficulty. Is that would that be uh, all right if I split it sure. like that? So, um just because it's interest, just because it makes sense, uh, is just because you can see all the formal features together and they kind of cohere. So one thing that I've Plato oh, is a really good place to start for this because you see all these different features of of constitutive relativity getting worked out in in the dialogues. And the ones that, ones the standard ones that I mention in in the, the book are exclusivity, that is to say that relatives relate only to each other, reciprocity, which is to say that a relative and its correlative relate to each other. So uh, a parent is correlative to an offspring and an offspring is offspring of a parent. Alliorelativity, which is the idea that a relative relates to something else, so no relative relates to itself. And Plato is a bit uncertain about whether that applies to all relatives, but Aristotle is very clear that it does apply to all relatives. And then existential symmetry, so this idea that there is no existential priority relation between, between correlatives. So uh, a just as a larger thing existentially depends on a smaller thing, a smaller thing existentially depends on a larger thing. They exist at all the same times. And they, you can see, just follows pretty straightforwardly from, from constitutive relativity, because if a larger thing is constituted by bearing a relation to a smaller thing, then, of course, it only bears that relation to a smaller thing. It doesn't bear the same constituting relation to a medium-sized thing, say. Same with reciprocity. Re- relations just kind of go both ways in that way. Uh, and existential symmetry it's easy to see why that follows from constitutive relativity because and reciprocity, because if one thing relates to another, if the larger thing relates to the smaller thing, they both got to, they constitute each other, they 've both got to exist at the same times that 's the kind of way that the, those formal properties kind of come out, and yeah, they get picked up and relied on in various different bits of uh, dialogues um, and there 's a lot of kind of argumentation in that part of the book. Sort of showing how these different assumptions get made in different points in the dialogue, um, different dialogues, and then on the greatest difficulty. Yeah, this is a this is a fun argument. I really. So, what's going on at that point in in the Parmenides is Parmenides has got the younger a younger Socrates uh, kind of on the ropes, as it were. He's he's really examining and going in hard against Socrates, sort of. Uh, theory of Forms, and Socrates there is defending defending this kind of maybe kind of provisional or first draft of the theory of Forms or something like that. And these arguments go along, and the famous third man argument is one of the arguments that Parmenides presents against Socrates. But the one that Socrates that Parmenides flags as the greatest difficulty for the theory of forms, is this, idea, is this one to do with relations? And roughly, this is the kind of last one that, that Parmenides goes through. And what he says is, well, look, anyone who thinks about forms, anyone who defends the forms, is gonna say that they are outer cathouter, th- themselves by themselves, they're somehow separate. But then what about these relational notions? Okay, So it seems like if the forms are separate uh, to our realm, then what about the form knowledge? Can the form knowledge, uh, f- same knowledge knows truths, so can the form knowledge know truths in our realm? Seems like Parmenides wants to say, no, it can't. And if the form knowledge can't know things in our realm, it seems like the gods can't know things that are going on in our realm. Equally, and more problematically for Socrates, um, our knowledge, knowledge of things here, the kind of knowledge that we have, can't know things in the form realm. But of course, one key thing that the forms have to do on the kind of Platonist picture is be objects of knowledge, objects of our knowledge. And so if we can't know things in the form realm, it seems like, well, we're, we're in real trouble. The theory of forms is in real trouble. It can't do the work that it needs to do. Um, so then what I want to say is somehow the constitutive view of relativity is in the background here, right? Because how do you understand this argument? Well, one way that you can understand it is as just saying parmenides is just saying look there are no relations whatsoever between our realm and the form realm there's sort of total separation or radical separation as i call it and if you think that really parmenides is just begging the question against socrates against the theory of forms because the theory of forms is perfectly able to allow some relations between um, forms and participants, in particular, the participation relation, right? Uh, it's just built into the theory of forms. So if you think that Parmenides is advocating or assuming or attributing to Socrates, the view that there are no relations between forms and participants, then he's just begging the question against Socrates. So what I want to say is, well, no, it's not that there are no relations whatsoever. It's just that, that none of the, there aren't any cons, constituting, constituting relations that bear between forms and participants. So the form knowledge is constituted by its relation to the form truths um, and it's not constituted to its relation to truths around in our realm, but that doesn't mean that there are no relations at all between things in the form realm and the form and the the realm of participants. And equally, our knowledge isn't constituted by relating to um, things in the form realm, truths in the form realm, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some relations that bear between them. So that's how I think the kind of constitutive view is in the background there it makes better sense of how the argument the greatest difficulty argument is supposed to be working
0: is that helpful okay. yeah. yeah so so uh, you know participates in operates something like yeah. uh, is a brother of
1: right exactly it's a relation rather than a, a, a relative so we're not trying to tell us what the what what it is what constitutes a participant of course if you were to ask that question the answer would have to be in terms of well, a participant is a participant partake, participates in what it partakes in, right? So that's going to be the constituting relation for participants. Um, but it's yeah, but it's not the case that it, it's not the case that those constituting relations compare between the participant realm and the form realm. So it's not that you have total isolation. It's not that you have no relations between the form realms and the participant realm. It's just that you don't get those special constituting relations between them.
0: Boom so it it, it almost sounds like uh the participating relation there has to be a commitment to that uh, yeah it it, in order to for there to even like be forms
1: yeah right exactly that's true that is true yeah 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 Yeah. um that's right yes
0: maybe there's a chicken and egg issue here i don't know It's, Um,
1: it's a difficult one i don't think i mean it doesn't come up in so i mean you could I guess you could press that point more into an objection to my reading and say something like, well, okay, but then what do you say about the participation relation? Isn't it that the participants are constituted by their relation to the things they participate in? so they do have these constituting relations and those things they participate in, in the forms. So you do have these cross realm consti- const- constitution relations or something like that. Is that the thought? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a, that a difficult issue. Uh, yeah, I'm not, really sure how, I'm not really sure how I would respond to that, other than to say it's not clear that, that Plato is considering those kinds of cases. He really seems more worried about the kind of contentful uh, cases, that, the, the cases that he's particularly worried about, the knowledge cases, I think, uh, in, the, in the greatest difficulty. So yeah, maybe he just doesn't consider those cases. But yeah, it's a good, it's a it's a good objection.
0: Well let me um I mean, before I before I go on to how Aristotle um revises this, um kind of stepping back where I mean it, as we mentioned before, it's it is sort of an odd um odd view, you know, from from our perspective. Um, and and you say explicitly, you know, I'm not defending constitutive relativity. I'm just saying this is a the best interpretation of the ancients, right? Um, so you make that distinction. Um uh but I I'm sort of wondering what what do you think might have motivated them to to hold this sort of bizarre, you know, somewhat bizarre, ontologically bizarre view, right? Um I mean it, it doesn't I mean, you know, common sense is not the be-all and end-all of everything. But, but it, you know, in general, you know, the, there was a lot of common sense. Of course, Aristotle in particular was always trying to sort of start from common sense before he departs from it. it, it you know, where that he needs to, right? <laughs> um, so, I'm, so I'm just, you know, again, stepping back is is uh, what what sort of you know and again you know the forms are not are not common sense but plato has a number of arguments for them and that's why platonism you know persists as a, as a as a general position so what what do you think you know motivates them to have this bizarre view so
1: this is this is a really good this is a really good question
0: uh and
1: it's not really one that i i if you want my kind of private secret view of what's going on here <laughs> is that um, I think it's to do with focusing on the, the kind of what is it question, this TSD question that Socrates keeps pressing. Because when, when you want to ask, what is it to be a brother? It seems like the answer's got to be given in terms of the, the correlative and the relationship that a brother bears to a correlative. When you're asking, what is it to be a larger thing? The answer looks like it's gone, going to be given in a, in relation to uh, a smaller thing. Now, if you don't have a great grip on the diff on kind of scope ambiguities, it might look like then you're saying, well, the the larger thing is larger than a smaller thing. Not some. It's not the case that every larger thing. And if you're not so clear on the different kind of quantifiers and scope ambiguities, it looks like you might take that to say, well, the larger thing is larger than. Some generic, smaller thing, some intentional object that is a smaller thing, and because that's going to be the that 's going to be what all larger things have in common they 're larger than a smaller thing now we would say, well yeah that, the mistake there is to say that uh, the larger thing is larger than some intentional object or some generic smaller thing really the mistake really, what you should say is that each larger thing is larger than some smaller thing so my brother Pat is larger than me, something like that. Um, But yeah, I don't think that that, I think that the, I think that the ancient view is really focusing on that, asking that question, the what is it question of relatives? And then the answer looks like it's going to be in terms of relation to these intentional objects. And then because you're answering a a question about the nature of those relatives in terms of the relations, these kinds of intentional correlatives or something like that, that's where you get this, this, kind of view of this kind of constitutive view because you're just already asking a question about the nature of those relatives so that's my private off the cuff <laughs> the way of of motivating it and setting it up i haven't got like the problem is the textual evidence for that for that reading is is pretty thin there are bits in plato and bits in aristotle where you have this idea of uh, the where the relative precisely what it is the hopper gets invoked um, and I think that's the kind of closest we can come to to giving a good textually grounded account for that. But I think, that, I mean, I think that help, might help to set up the philosophical motivation a little bit more. I mean, some scholars have said, well, they're so either they've said they're just really confused about this phenomenon to the point where we can't even take it seriously. Uh, that's been a, a fairly common view in the literature. Or people have tried to make sense of of the idea of yeah, they're trying to make sense of this phenomenon of relativity, but they're not invoking relations at all. They just have, they're, they're so, mistake. they kind of just have monadic properties, one-place properties, and they don't have any relational properties at all. And then they've tried to tell a story about how Plato and Aristotle are making sense of relativity just with monadic properties. I don't want to go in either of those routes. I don't want to say they're doing away with relations altogether, nor do I want to say they're totally confused. I want to say their view is, is different and weird, but it's different and weird (laughs) from our point of view, but it is a kind of, it it makes sense to them, I guess.
0: Yeah. There's a coherence to it.
1: Yeah. Precisely. There's a coherence and a motivation that's comprehensible. Even if, as I say, we really don't want to go philosophically for the constitutive view. Um, it, It really does give the best explanation for a lot of the moves that they make and a lot of the assumptions that they seem to be making in various places
0: okay so um Aristotle, right, so yeah. he uh, on your reading also has a has a constitutive relativity view, but it's different from plato's um yeah uh, and as as is typical of Aristotle, it's intended to correct certain mistakes in his in his predecessor um can yeah. you can you <laughs> say a bit about about Aristotle's view
1: yeah, so really i i mean i think the story starts with category seven, so Aristotle in the the seventh uh, book of the categories devotes the whole book to relatives, Um, caprosities he calls them, and what he wants to say, I think the important thing to think here, one important thing to note here is that we're in the context of the categories which has a particular ontology, uh, an ontology of uh, primary substances and secondary substances. So I think that that's in, in more immediately an important departure from, from what Plato's doing. And Aristotle's really trying to take what I think take Plato's ideas or these assumptions that Plato's been making about relativity, make them more explicit in Category 7 and fit them into this, into this context of the Categories ontology. So I think that's roughly the two, the two things that are going on that make the categories a bit weird and different compared to Plato. So what are those differences? Well. Um, one important difference is this issue of alia-relativity. So that's the, as I, what I call the idea that a relative must relate to something else. Now, in Plato, in the Carmedes, Plato's Socrates seems really unsure about whether all relatives relate to other things or whether some can relate to themselves. And they're considering cases of self-knowledge, which roughly they think of as knowledge of knowledge. And then the question is, well, can there be such a thing as knowledge of knowledge? And just, they just, they, they don't really reach an answer. Socrates eventually says, well, maybe some great man will come along and show us the answers to this question. And maybe Aristotle thinks he's that great man, I don't know. But Aristotle certainly responds to this question of alia-relativity and says, well, because he simply defines relatives as things that are of or than or somehow in relation to something else uh, or said to be of or than uh, or somehow in relation to something else in uh, the first sentence of, of category seven. So he just defines relatives as earlier relatives. And then I guess one thing I wanted to do in the book or in the chapter on Aristotle is explain why, because it just seems like wh- why would there be this difference? And um, one thing that you could think, and one thing that it, constitutive relativity makes sense of is why there might be this difference, because in the categories ontology, everything's got to bottom out in primary substances. This principle is sometimes called the primacy of primary substance or something like that. and It looks like if you have constitutive relatives that relate to themselves, so knowledge of knowledge, it looks like they need not bottom out in primary substances. They need not be related or grounded in primary substances because, well, it seems like knowledge is constituted by its relation to its object. If that object is knowledge itself, then it seems like knowledge is constituted by its relation to itself. And so then it's this free floating thing that doesn't need to be grounded in a primary substance. It can just be grounded in it itself, in its relations to itself. So that's, I think, why Aristotle is really keen that, that there are no alio relatives, and he just defines relatives that way. In a way that Plato just wasn't because he didn't have the same commitments to the primacy of, of primary substance. So I think that's one way, one really simple way in which Aristotle kind of correcting, correcting the view. Aristotle then goes on to do a few other things um yeah make a few more distinctions uh, I don't know should we talk about those
0: um well you do you do say that um you know a lot of what he's doing there is is developing subclasses of relatives um uh within uh you know so in the so there's a number of different. so in the categories right he has the category of relatives. Um, and then in the metaphysics, uh, this is not a different view. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an elaboration of the view that's, that's first expounded in the categories, at least that's, that you're reading, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting to talk about the relationship between category seven and metaphysics Delta 15, which is the other big discussion of, of, Relatives in, in Aristotle. So, one thing that's gone on in most of the scholarship on Category Seven, and probably most of the scholarship on relativity at all in the ancient in ancient philosophy, has been on this difference between two definitions that Aristotle raises, uh, two are different definitions that Aristotle gives for relatives in Category Seven. So, at the very beginning, he gives that definition I already mentioned, uh, said to be uh, relatives are said to be what they are of or than or somehow related to something else. And then sort of later on, he sets up a different definition, which is relatives um, are, are the things that somehow relate to something. And it's really unclear why he sets these two different definitions. Well, it's kind of clear why he sets them up, but then exactly the nature and the relationship between those two definitions has kind of been subject to a fair amount of, of dispute. It seems like the reason he sets up that difference is that he wants he has this worry that somehow some substances might end up being relatives if the first definition is sufficient so if the first definition looks like there are going to be cases where items like my hand will be both a substance and a relative so why is it going to be a substance well i'm a substance the hand is part of me so the hand is a part of a substance so the hand is a substance on the other hand the hand is part of me so the hand is of or than something so it's a relative But Aristotle thinks, in common with a lot of people around the academy, that no substance can be a relative. So that seems like a problem for him. And he seems to think, it seems to be that the second definition is introduced to resolve this problem. Now, a lot of people have thought that the second definition is just narrower than the first. So the way that Aristotle approaches the problem is to just narrow down the scope of relatives, just make fewer things relatives according to the second definition. So And that under narrower class wouldn't include examples like a hand. What I want to say is something slightly different is that you actually the two definitions are coextensive, but really they're just a difference between the ways of looking at, as it were, looking at a relative. So in the first definition, it's supposed to be kind of schematic, i.e. we're just thinking about these items as relatives. So what's the nature of relative? Well, it's over down something. Whereas the second definition we're asking specifically what the identity of this particular relative is, and what features does it have in virtue of having that identity? So here's a simple example. You might think, um, to set up that contrast, uh, a father is father of sons, something like that. Is that statement true? Well, it depends on whether you're thinking schematically or specifically about the father, because if you're thinking schematically, it seems false. Right? Because there just seem to be loads of cases where there are fathers who don't have sons, they have daughters. But taken specifically, well, it depends which father you're thinking about. If you're thinking about me, then it's false because I only have daughters. But if you're thinking about, uh, if you're thinking about some other father, it might be true because my father, for example, only has sons. So that's the difference between the schematic and specific ways of thinking about relatives. Schema- specific relatives, the identity matters. Schematically, we're just thinking about them as a relative and that's what i want yeah should i say something about how that relates to metaphysics or is that uh
0: well i mean you know complete your your discussion yeah
1: (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. so yeah so very briefly then there's then this other question in the literature about exactly how metaphysics delta 15 relates to category 7 and there's been some worry that delta 15 seems inconsistent at certain points with category seven. And basically what I argue in that chapter where I discuss delta 15 is that once you understand this schematic specific difference that Aristotle's already introduced into category seven, those inconsistencies disappear. You can explain anything that appears inconsistent between metaphysics delta 15 and category seven by invoking this, this distinction. Um, yeah. Okay. And then does that make sense? Does that help?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to make sure we get to the, uh, the Stoics and the skeptics. Um, so in the, in the, 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 for the Stoics, you, you choose, uh, Simplicius as the kind of the representative of of the school. Um, uh, so how does, how does he uh, elaborate, uh, this idea. Um, and I know, you know, here, I mean, in, throughout the book and we haven't really mentioned this, but you are also responding to various other interpreters, right? Um, uh, so, you know, I haven't, I haven't emphasized other readings that people have given where you're opposing their reading. Um, um, so, I mean, but that's, it's up to you to emphasize that or not. Um, But in any case, um, so with the Stoics, um, you know, there seems to be a kind of a standard reading that you're opposing um,
1: regarding
0: relativity. So could you, could you go into that a bit? Yeah. So with the
1: Stoics, um, so Simplicius is writing a commentary on Aristotle's category seven as it happens. And he's writing and he's, he's, he records in the, in the course of this commentary, a fair amount of information about Stoic ideas of relativity but like characteristically with Stoics it's not uh, you you just get the views and you don't necessarily get the arguments and the context for the views so it can be quite confusing trying to reconstruct exactly why the Stoics might have thought a particular way about relativity. What Simplicius does tell us about the Stoics is that they distinguish two kinds of relativity Um, some which he calls relatives or maybe differentiated relatives and on the other hand, relatives somehow disposed. And these first sort, these differentiated relatives, the examples are supposed to be things like sweet and bitter, whereas for the relatives somehow disposed, the example is supposed to be father. And Simplicius also tells us that the difference between these two can be seen in terms of how they interact with change. So it seems like the differentiated relatives kind of co-change or change together, whatever that means, and the relatives somehow disposed um, allow kind of cases of relative change where the the relative just changes in virtue of changing its relation. So, for example, a you a, a child could go from being uh, a child could go could become an orphan just because their parents die or something like that. Or I could become shorter just because my brother grows, not because I've shrunk, something like that. And that's supposed to be that's really what Simplicius sort of tells us now. One, the sort of standard way, the orthodox way of reading this um, goes back to my PhD supervisor, David Sedley, he distinguishes hard and soft relative properties here. And He says, well, um, the relatives somehow disposed are kind of hard relative properties and the relatives differentiated are soft relative properties. What's the difference between hard and soft relatives? Well, the hard relatives are ones that are just grounded in the relation, that have the property just because it's grounded in the relation. Whereas the soft relative properties is grounded in the relation and something else. So, sweet is a soft relative property because it's got to be uh, it's grounded in the relation that the sugar bears to my tongue, but also the chemical structure of the sugar. That's the non-relative property that it that it has that is also grounds the the, the relative property. Whereas the hard relative properties are ones that you can have just in virtue of the uh, relation so being a father you don't need anything else you just need to bear the as a father of relation to something so that's the kind of but well, don't you have to be
0: this... male
1: exactly so this is so this is one objection to the mapping hard this is one exact objection to this reading of the of the stoics right because it seems like hard relatives uh, the, the examples don't quite fit because a father doesn't seem to be a father just in virtue of bearing the a relation to the offspring, it also needs some intrinsic sub non-relational property being male. So the hard relative, soft relative contrast doesn't quite fit with the examples of stoic relatives that Simplicius gives. So, yeah, that's where that's kind of where I've I come in and I try to say, well, actually, we can make better sense of this with invoking constitutive relativity, because it seems like the. The relatives sometimes disposed, like father, well, they're going to be, first of all, they're not properties at all. Simplicius doesn't talk about them as, as relative properties, he talks about them as relatives. And constitutive relativity, of course, focuses on relatives rather than relative properties. But also, it seems as though uh, to be a father, yeah, you, being a father is just constituted by bearing the as a father of relation, or the, the father is constituted by bearing the as a father of relation to uh, some offspring. And then the sweet and the bitter, well, they're they have a they're constituted by having a power to act in a certain kind of way. And that's how I take the the relatives, uh the differentiated relatives. The sweet and the bitter have a power to act in relation to each other. So the, the sweet has a power to sweeten the bitter, the bitter has a power to be sweetened by uh the, the bitter has a power to embitter, I guess, or embitter the sweet, and so on. So that's how I cash out the distinction that that Simplifus reports on the Stoics.
0: Um okay. Um uh <laughs> is that, is that a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um I was just thinking of some, you know, oddnesses of it. You know, one would think that the um the the correlative of of the sweet um, you know, it it wouldn't it wouldn't be the bitter. It's it's not really yeah. It's it's, it's not it's not like larger, you know, the correlative of the larger is clearly the smaller. But it's not entirely clear that the correlative of the sweet ought to be the bitter. Those are exactly.
1: Yeah, I think partly that's partly that's to do with how we think about sensation, because often ancient philosophers think of sensation as uh, as kind of a correspondence between two powers. So, if I taste something sweet, that's because my tongue is bitter relative to the thing that I'm tasting. So my tongue is bitterer than the sugar. So the contrast is what makes me taste the sweetness. Rather like if I put my hand in some warm water, the water feels warm because the water is warmer than my hand. So I think that's where the sweet bitter kind of the sweet and bitter comes in because they have these powers and those powers act in relation to each other. The sweet acts on the bitter to make the subject of the the subject of the taste taste sweet. Um and then that really does that that correlation between powers does some work in Stoic physics, um, the relationship between the kind of active principle and the passive principle constituting material objects for the Stoics. Uh, I talk a little bit about that as well. But I must say that those chapters on the Stoics are the most tricky, I think, in the book. The, what's going on with the Stoics and relativity is really difficult to determine. Um, and there are lots, like you say, of, of philosophical issues, but also lots of very difficult textual issues to contend with all at the same time. So I found writing those chapters actually the, the hardest <laughs> of the book.
0: Mm. Right. Um, so, so the the last group, um, uh, the Peronian skeptics, right, who, who represented uh, as, as so often by Sextus Empiricus. Um, so uh, there, you, know, you sort of make the you know, the whole idea of relativity, you know, kind of takes center stage for them, right? Um, can you can you explain their uh, their uh, view and and the role it plays in their uh, overall philosophy?
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel like um, I hope people who are reading the book uh, for the information on the on the skeptics, don't feel shortchanged. I, I've had planned to write rather more about relativity and skepticism, and the end ended up being being one chapter. I mean, for for the Peronian skeptics, the relativity is really, really important to that overall skeptical program, right? So Sextus gives these Anistademon modes and the Agrippan modes, and relativity is is one in each kind of class. These modes are sort of ways of arguing that will always unseat the dogmatist, and they're a key part of the kind of skeptical skill or the skeptical practice that that, that that, uh, Sextus envisions this Peronian going around engaging in. so he really makes relativity centre stage. I think the way that he thinks about relativity is a very close relation to, to the constitutive relativity, but rather he frames it in terms of, conce- of, of conceptual terms. So he, he wants to say that, well, uh, we conceive of something as relative to something else, to its relative to its correlative. So we must conceive of a brother as relative to a sibling. We must conceive of a parent as relative to a child. I think he makes that move because he doesn't want to be committed to any particular ontology, right? So we've been talking in constitutive terms about the constituting relations for these relata, but Sextus doesn't want to put his feet down on any of those because of his skepticism. So he he moves to this conceptual level and says, well, when we conceive of relatives, we must also conceive of them as relating to their their kind of corresponding correlative. And the way that I in the book really talk about how he puts this conception to use is in his skeptical attacks on different what he calls dogmatic concepts. So these are concepts that are key to different dogmatic schools. For instance, um, the sign signified relationship is a really key epistemic notion for both Stoics, but also for Epicureans. And so Sextus wants to say, well, actually, if you think about the concept of a sign, it's a relative concept. But when you think about it, it's going to be epistemically useless because precisely because it's a kind of conceptual relative and his argument i mean his argument isn't very good but it's something like this um if i recognize that something is a sign i'm conceiving it as a a sign in order to conceive of something as a sign i have to conceive of it as having a correlative but if i'm conceiving it as having a correlative i already know what the correlative is the thing signified so by 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 encountering a sign, I can't get any new knowledge because just by encountering something as a sign, I've already encountered the thing that it signifies. Um, now that seems wrong for the for the obvious reason that, well, I yeah to conceive of something as a sign, I have to conceive of it as signifying something. But I don't already have, don't have to know what it signifies, right? Um, just as I conceive of some smoke as a sign, doesn't mean I conceive of it. Uh, I, I already know. What the fire is, what what kind of thing the fire is, whether it's a chemical fire or a house fire or anything like that. So just in virtue of conceiving of something as a sign, yeah, I know it has a, a signif, it signifies something, but I don't know what it signifies. So Sextus's arguments for that skepticism aren't great, but that's the kind of way he deploys con- kind of relativity to try to undermine dogmatism. He he tries to undermine these important relative concepts that the dogmatists have like signs like causation like proof and so on and tries to use his his ideas of relativity to undermine them like that
0: so it it sounds like a kind of a nominalism actually is that would that be correct
1: yeah that it, it is quite nominalistic exactly um he's Sextus is is definitely moving in that sort of direction um Precisely because he doesn't want to be a realist about these kind of abstract thing, uh, abstract objects. However, I mean, with, with everything with, with the Peronian skeptics, you have to caveat it by saying, well, maybe nominalism is a philosophical position, and if you're a Peronian skeptic, you're going to want to abjure that as well. So it's very difficult <laughs> to kind of pin them down um, as a make pin them down and make them consistent. Uh, so really, any claims about attributing Sextus particular philosophical views is going to be controversial. And a lot of the pushback I had when I was working on the book was, was like, well, you're attributing to Sextus a view of relativity here, but he's meant to not have any philosophical views. Or mm-hmm. not meant to have any right. philosophical views. So how can he have those? And the answer is, I'm not sure, but he's got to have something because he's arguing all over the place.
0: <laughs> right. Right, right. It's just maybe the skepticism just isn't uh, entirely uh, consistent or something. Um, but, but if it's not, uh, you know, I mean, so he, he kind of goes to a semantic or conceptual level in a way. Um, so how, the, you know, so when we started, it was, of course, constitutive relativity. The idea is ontologically bizarre um <laughs> uh what what's the corresponding bizarreness of the conceptual relativity yeah i think it's
1: that you that you get the as it were content of the correlative for free that's what's weird about it so that argument i sketched about signs and signified Sextus seems to be assuming that just because i'm thinking of a sign i'm also thinking of the thing that is signified but that's not obviously correct so just as conceiving of something as a sign doesn't mean I conceive of what it signifies. Although, of course, I conceive of it as signifying something. So that's, I think, where his view go, That's, I think, where his view is correspondingly weird. Right? That that just in virtue of knowing the relative, you also know precisely which correlative you're thinking of. Just because. So just because, for example, I know that. Um, just because I know that ten is larger than something, I conceive of ten as a larger number. Well, it doesn't follow that I'm conceiving of it as larger than any particular number, like five or three or one something like that. But Sextus seems committed to that—that that I am thinking of it as larger than some particular, some particular smaller number. Yeah. So that's, I think, the weird, the corresponding weirdness <laughs>
0: <laughs> for his view. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, well, let me. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you the there is only one. You know, despite the the prominence of, of ideas of relativity and the skeptics. There's only one, one chapter of the book in that. Um, are you, you know, are you working on f- furthering that particular aspect or, um, are you looking at other things entirely? I mean, what's, what's on your plate at the moment, you know, following the publication of this book? Well, I mean, what on my plate?
1: Uh, well, in terms of research, what's on my plate is actually a more another shorter book on on relativity, but more on relative change. So, actually, that came up with the Stoics, but I've got uh, just finishing off a shorter study of relative change in Plato, Aristotle, uh, the Skeptics, and and the Stoics, and how they think about that. So, there is more stuff on how Sextus thinks about, about uh, relativity in that, um, but just because of their constitutive view, these guys are quite puzzled by cases of relative change, cases like, like the one, I mentioned, where I can become shorter even though I don't shrink. So I've got some, something coming out on that. Um, and there is, I mean, there's lots and lots more, that there's lots of more projects that you could do on ancient relativity. You could look at uh, ancient ideas of uh, relational logic uh, how they thought about inferences involving relativity because that became a really big issue in the 19th century uh, a really big problem for kind of Aristotelian logic uh, but you could look at how ancient philosophers thought about ancient uh, relativ- you could also think of more about relativism in the context of of, uh, of, of skepticism of uh, ancient relativity but I've been yeah I, I've been just doing that stuff on relative change I've just also signed a book contract with a colleague in Brazil, Luca Pitolo, and we're doing a book on uh, infinite regress arguments um, a kind of edited volume on that and yeah, personally I'm yeah, about to undergo a significant relative change because I'm about to have a kid, so that's going to oh, be the gosh. next big project
0: <laughs> um, Wow, wow better get those books out of the way Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> very good. So, yeah. Uh,
0: Well, congratulations on that um... Thank you very much um yeah uh so we are we're just about out of time um is there anything further that you wanted to mention about the book that i that that we didn't get to that i didn't ask about
1: no i think i think we i think we covered most of it i think that's that's really good i just wanted to say yeah thanks again it's been uh, it's been really fun i hope it was i hope it was i hope it made some sense i know that the views are quite alien but i tried to try to make them at least comprehensible i don't pretend to make them plausible but at least sort of
0: yeah <laughs> right well that's that's difficult especially when you're working with with you know often fragmentary um texts you know yeah t- to be with but um well i appreciate you taking the time to uh to talk about your book um it's no it i really appreciate having me on day. It's 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 always fun to delve into um ancient metaphysics at least at least for me <laughs> hopefully for my for our listeners yeah. um, but uh yeah so so thanks again for for joining new books in philosophy and and uh i wish you luck with with your you know your book and baby projects <laughs> thank you very much Thanks. <laughs> okay, okay bye- bye You've been listening to my interview with Matthew Duncoe, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. We've been talking about his new book, Ancient Relativity, Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, and Skeptics, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Fegdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.